Well, hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining. Anders and I on what I know is going to be a very, very thought-provoking question and answer session, all COVID-related. Anders, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you very much uh, for uh, inviting me to this conversation, Martin. Um, you and I have known each other for many years, which means we've both been in the pharmaceutical industry for many years. I have worked in quality in startups and large companies, national, global, um, done a little bit of everything. And uh, really right now, I'm uh, very much involved in things that has to do with reduction of drug shortages and more innovation in the industry. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thank you, Anders. And, and, and as you say, you know, you and I go back a long way. But just to introduce myself to the listeners, I'm Martin Lush. I'm the Global Vice President for NSF Health Sciences, which is a division of uh, NSF International, which is a not-for-profit foundation focused on improving, protecting and improving global health. So, you know, the subject of uh, when Anders and I were talking a few weeks and months ago relating to COVID and the, some of the challenges that the pharmaceutical industry has faced, we thought, you know what, it'd be great to share our thoughts and our questions with a broader audience. I'm sure that you'll all find this really, really useful. Um, Anders, first question, the, the, you know, the first vaccines came to market in rapid time, thanks to a, a global effort as well as new technologies. How is this possible and how can the regulatory structure effectively support rather than hinder their rapid deployment? Yeah, you know, it really, it really was a, a race against time. It was, it was really a virus that um, was up against everybody in the world. So it was like a war against the the virus, and um, and we were losing. We were losing that uh, that battle. Um, the virus um, infected many people, and many people died. So it was really a race against time. So everybody. Uh, found ways of working that we haven't done for a very long time. So um, instead of thinking about just my own job and what I'm usually doing, everybody came together. Uh, governments were funding research. Pharma companies were super fast. New technologies were introduced and, and all of that. So I think it was because everybody had the same enemy. We had to do something to win over this virus, the COVID-19 and uh, I think focus was truly on fast track to slow down the virus. And that was, that was really the reason, I think. So um, it looks like it's coming more under control in a good part of the world. And um, congratulations to you, Martin. It looks like uh, UK is getting back to normal with full opening in, in June. So how do you feel about that? Are you positive, optimistic, concerned? What, what are your thoughts? It's an interesting question, Anders. I think, firstly, it's a feeling of relief um, and a reward for everyone's efforts, both during lockdown as well as our, our, our own healthcare system. So having come back off four months of lockdown, number one, it's a relief. Um, also, my feeling of it's, it's, a, it's a reminder to remain very, very humble um, you know, I've been following COVID since it started. And to be honest, I know less about COVID-19 now than I did 15 months ago. So I think, yes, 
relief that we're, we're opening up, but a recognition of, look, um, be mindful. Um, we're not, we're not driving this tiger. We're riding this tiger. Um, you know, there are positive sides to, to, to the open up. You know, firstly, we have greater awareness of the, the, the virus than we have, we've had before. Um, we have greater protection in the community, uh, in the sense that, you know, we have a big percentage of the population that has antibodies either through infection or through vaccination. Uh, we have measures in place. For example, vaccine supply is not a challenge any longer. Uh, so if there is any additional flare up, you know, I, I remain confident that the severity of that can be managed. We have the infrastructure in place that wasn't there before for distribution and testing. Um, you know, we, we have a bigger percentage, as I said, of the population vaccinated, which is phenomenal. We're doing far more gene sequencing than anybody else globally. So we can keep track and respond quickly to new strains and mutations coming through. Uh, we're doing more in more novel ways of tracking the movement of the, of the virus through, for example, analysis of sewage, which is, uh, you know, a, a good indicator of where the, where the virus is getting. We have an ability for surge testing. We have an ability for surge vaccination. You know, our treatment regimes clinically are better than they've been before. Um, and we know the vaccines are incredibly effective. So, you know, there's a lot to be optimistic about. However, there's always a but. You know, I'm a microbiologist and I've always been taught to use the yes, but phrase. We know there's an increase in vaccine hesitancy. We know that there are parts of the UK, as there are in the US, that remain low in the vaccination uh, percentage. We know that we're opening up and there are more mass gatherings. Uh, we know this virus is is prone to mutate. Um, so I just don't want us to throw away all of what has been achieved by getting carried away too quickly. Because you and I know, Anders, that as soon as hospital rates and infection rates go up, that's a lag. They are lagging indicators, and it's too late to do much about it. So um, I think going forward, that optimism has to be balanced by, look, let's not get carried away. Let's let the science drive the decisions. Um, and also let's communicate quickly and more transparently with the population uh, going forward. So overall, really, really pleased, but let's not, let's not get carried away. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I was thinking about when you were saying all the things you were saying of how much has really been achieved in such a short period of time. And, and I, I'd say I was, I was quite emotional when I got my first and my second shot of the, of the vaccine. And I know that many that I've spoken with are the same. It's really, it's really incredible, remarkable what has, has been achieved over this, uh, a little more than a year. So when you, Think about it, if we expand a little bit on what I just said before, the headlines in the UK, in Europe and North America are kind of more getting in direction of mission accomplished. And uh, and you elaborate a little bit on that. Can you say a little bit more? Do you agree or, or, or how do you see how do you see the situation? I, I, I think that term mission accomplished is a really dangerous term. I disagree with it emphatically. You know, if I link it to a soccer game, and as I think we are 
20 minutes into the first half of the soccer game. Um, so I think it is by far certainly not mission accomplished because, as, I, as, as I've said on numerous occasions, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Um, and you and I have discussed concerns around India that is catastrophic at the moment. I know cases are coming down, but the numbers of deaths and infections are, you know, India is still on fire. That is going to be replicated in Africa. It is already being replicated in Latin America. So we have a long, long way to go because these areas where, you know, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, less than 0.5% of the population have actually received a vaccine. And that isn't going to change anytime soon as India, which is which, you know, 87% of COVAX vaccine supplies destined for Africa come from India. Well, they're not coming from India because India is not exporting anything um, because it has a critical domestic need and that will remain the same for the rest of the year. So um, it certainly hasn't been mission accomplished. We're going to have these areas, uh, uh, these continents where mutations and new strains will inevitably happen. And unfortunately, the levels of gene sequencing and testing and track and trace and uh, healthcare infrastructure, particularly in Africa, um, is such that we're not going to know about what is out there until probably it is too late. What we've also got to remember, Anders, in the US, there are parts of the United States where there is less than 20% of the population in those states that have been vaccinated. So we're going to see flare-ups. And, and, you know, with these different strains coming through, um, it's, it's still, for me, a major concern. So mission accomplished, no. We are 20 minutes into the first half of a soccer game or a football game, to use the proper term. And as well, I mean, yeah, one no, of the, right. yeah, you know, one of the, I know one of the passions that you have, have always had is, is, is the role regulatory agencies, uh, in particular, the approval process. You know, you, you're right. Very early on, everybody changed. We had rapid approval of vaccines. And one of the questions I've got for you is what, what three regulatory changes do you think are needed to enable vaccine supply to keep up with demand that is only going to increase? I think the very first one, which is very important, is an appreciation that infectious diseases are global. And that's not how we regulate ourselves. Everything we do is about national or in the EU regional um, regulations and so on. We're going we're gonna to start thinking about that if we're going to beat and win the war against the virus, we need to think about what it does, and it doesn't know any borders. So we need to have everybody, including regulators, industry, everybody, to think about that we need to appreciate that diseases are global. You said it, it's not until everybody's vaccinated that we can feel safe. And I, I truly believe that. And as you said, if there are parts of the world where people are not being vaccinated, then very, the variants will continue to to come, uh, the virus will mutate. And at some point, the current vaccines are probably not gonna uh, cover new variants at, at some point. So it's important that, that we think about that. That's, I would say that's number one. Number two is that it is important that regulators 
start to share expertise and resources more because if they do, then it'll go much faster. And think about it again, the way you regulate in the US or Europe, Australia, Japan, anywhere in the world, in terms of how you manage and combat this disease should really be the same. It shouldn't be different how you address this, whether you live in the US or Europe or where you live. So I think that's that's the second one. The third one is we need to uh, change the way we work in general when it comes to agility, because the current regulatory system today is not agile. So yeah, it went fast to get these vaccines approved in, in all different countries around the world. But as soon as a company wants to make a change in the manufacturing process, it can be that they learn some things so they can narrow ranges, a better analytical method, a new raw material supplier. There's a lot of things that will change over time. But every country has their own reporting requirements, what needs to be reported, how it needs to be reported. And most importantly is for every change that is being reported, health authorities and uh, requires a prior approval so prior to implementing that takes three to five years from the first to the last country and you can imagine what if that had been the pace we had done things for the first approval we would still not have a lot of approvals in place we would still be behind and the virus would definitely have um, done even uh, more damage than it has done already so i think those are the three things that in my view uh, are really really important to um, to look at and, and change. So global disease, diseases are global. Two, um, we need to work more together. And three, it needs to be faster. It's a faster moving world and we need to appreciate that and get ready for that. Just leading on from that, Anders, um, yeah. I, you know, to, to credit the regulatory agencies, you know, they really have moved at COVID speed in, in, a, you know, in, in a lot of what they've done with clinical trial approvals, emergency use author, authorizations and so on. Do you think that what, what they have experienced and achieved during COVID, that that kind of COVID speed will, will become normal speed, not just for vaccines, but for, for other approvals? I mean, what's your gut feel? Do you think what do you think they will continue to do what they've done exceptionally well, but on an exceptional basis? Or do you think there's, they, 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 they will go back and do go back to the old ways of working, so to speak? What, what does your gut feel tell you? My gut feel tells me that they will go back to the old way of working. And I'll, I'll, I'll share a couple of things here, at least one thing. If you read the guidance in uh, Europe, for COVID-19 and what can be done. Um, there's a number of things that companies can do. Um, one, they need to use um, risk management. They need to document what the change, the role of the quality organization is extremely important. All of that is, is, is in there and that's important. But it's also specifies this is only related to COVID. It's not related to anything else. But that's what we need to do. We really need to start looking into um, finding those new ways of working that has worked for us now and start to make them kind of more the normal way yeah. of working. I, yeah. I really think that's important. And I, I, and I think we have a, a role as, um, as industry in that, because if you think about it, um, 
Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson or Johnson, AstraZeneca, and the, the ones that are producing these vaccines, the same facilities can produce the same vaccine to everybody around the world, but it's being regulated at a national level. And that's that's fine that it's, the sovereignty needs to be there with decision makers in, in national agencies. But we need to start more thinking about the science and risk-based approach to how we do changes, how we make sure that we have a healthy industry in terms of uh, modern technologies and the opportunity to innovate and, and all of that. So I think it's important that we think about something which is patient-centric, it's science-based, and uh, and we see the whole world when we produce to the whole world. Um, and I think that's important that we start to speak up more as scientists and technical people about what can be and what can be done without increasing risk to patients. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and just like just like diseases, no no borders. The same with science. Science is science, right? No matter where you sit in in the world. So, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking about uh, the role of WHO here, and I know that both you and I have some thoughts on that as well. So, if you were in charge of WHO and uh, you were gifted um, an extra hundred million dollars or euros, um. What would you do? Where would you spend it? I firstly ask you, can I have more? Because a hundred million doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really go a long way. And I think it's important to emphasize, you know, the, the WHO is incredibly underfunded. I know it's, it's coming for criticism. Uh, you know, everybody's coming for criticism in the way that they've handled and managed, uh, COVID. Uh, and the WHO has as well. So I think, but to answer your question specifically, I think one of the many books I've got on the back here is written by a, a virologist who, who modeled, um, uh, the flu epidemics and basically concluded that if everybody in the world donated one dollar a year, um, we would have enough, we would have had enough to more than adequately prevent uh, this and future pandemics. So I think that kind of gives us a sense of what level of investment is actually required. But to answer the question specifically, if I could target a hundred million, um, I would target it on strengthening and improving local healthcare systems. And what I mean by local healthcare systems, you and I know the, 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 the secret to controlling preventing pandemics. Now, you you know, outbreaks are always going to happen, but pandemics are optional. Um, To reduce the the probability of pandemics, it all comes down to early detection, early containment, early treatment, early prevention. And it's about speed of response in, in those areas of risk. So those are areas of geographical risk where, you know, a- a- Asia Pacific region in particular, South America on occasions, where we know there that the, the component parts of a pandemic are there, levels of deforestation, people coming into direct contact with animals, higher risk of zoonotic infections. So in those areas, let's really focus on spending that money on local healthcare systems to enable that early detection, early monitoring, early track and trace, early prevention, 
um, rather than because certainly in the UK, there's lots of d- discussion and debate. And I know the same is in the US about how do we strengthen our, our, our own healthcare systems to manage the next pandemic? That is completely wrong because we're talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars um, to manage mass numbers of patients rather than hundreds of millions to actually early detect, early contain uh, uh, and, and prevent. So for me, I'll be spending the money in other areas, not my local, my backyard. And also I would invest in a, in a rapid reaction force, you know, a global force of epidemiologists, medics, people with logistics and infrastructure experience so that if there was an outbreak in, in a part of the world where they don't have the infrastructure and the, the expertise, they jump on a plane, they get over there. Very similar to the way Ebola was controlled, largely through massive in, uh, investment in time and money from the American military. You know, the American military actually <laughs> contained Ebola by throwing their expertise and resources at, at, at the disease. So that is how I would spend my hundred million. But I'd ask you if you could add a few more, few more noughts onto it. Yeah, with all um, of that, I, I think you need a little, a little bit more than that, Martin. I actually have sort of a, a follow-up on that because I was sitting thinking about you mentioned Ebola and WHO had a big role in, in that as well, just as you said, the, the American military. WHO was really successful in the eradication of smallpox years back. And um, we're down to one or two countries that still have uh, polio. Uh, and WHO has played a, a big role in that. How, how do you see WHO kind of um, have that role more going forward, um, not only with COVID, but in general? Do you know what? I think it, it, it needs, we, we do need a global center of excellence, a global where where data is collated, where advice can be given. And, you know, you know, after the Second World War, part of, part of you know, the institutions established um, was was the, the WHO. But it does need, mm-hmm. so we still need it. At the moment, there is nothing to replace the WHO, but it does need to be modernized. It does need to be funded um, properly. Um, and it does need more authority. And that's where, unfortunately, the politics, as you and I know, come into play. Um, because mm-hmm. at the moment, it really doesn't have any teeth. So, so when we reflect, as we will do nationally as well as globally, about lessons learned, part of that reflection has to be an honest debate as to do we need the WHO? Yes. Do we need it in its current form? No. We need to be, we need to modernize it. And in order to modernize it, we need to fund it. Um, and I think that's where, you know, that's where the, you know, the rubber hits the road as to whether, when you just look at the trillions and trillions, put aside the human cost, which is considerable, the trillions of dollars, you know, uh, that the global economy has been impacted by. Hopefully our political leaders will see the sense in that level of investment to make the probability of the next pandemic considerably less. So it's, it's needed, needs to be modernized, but it needs to be funded correctly. And we need to rethink the terms of reference to to improve its level of authority. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Um, so um, one thing that, you know, that I live in the U.S. here, so there's a lot in the news about the different administrations' uh, activities and so on. Um, Biden, President Biden has asked the CIA to look into the source of COVID. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, this debate and as, you know, was COVID natural in its origin or was it um, created or incubated in a lab from which it escaped? You know, very early on, um, you know, the gene, sync, gene sync sequencing kind of indicated, look, this was a naturally, you know, came from natural origins. Um, whether that science still is saying the same thing, I don't know. But I have to say, when I saw those headlines, my, my heart kind of sank, um, really because, look, we've got to learn from this. In order to learn so that we can prevent, that requires a level of transparency. For that mm -hmm. transparency to happen, you know, we, we need that level of collaboration. As you said earlier, the whole world has been impacted by this. And as soon mm -hmm. as we politicize it, which we're at risk of doing, that transparency just goes straight out the window. Um, and we know two things. One is we're never going to get to the answer, ever. And secondly, the very process of trying to get to the answer is going to shut down the very transparency required to get to the answer. So, no, I, I'm, I'm not in favour of it. I think it's a detrimental step. Yeah, you can you can see the political motivation behind it, but it no, nobody will win. So, no, I'm not in favour of it. Right. So, if you if you see President Biden, you can you can pass that on to the next Tea Party. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Anders, I know I, one thing I like about you is that you're an optimist um, <laughs> and the world needs a lot more optimists. Um, what are the three things you are optimistic about in the future? Well, I would say um, number one is that um, reality can outbeat our expectations. So reality beats our imagination and so on. Just look at what has happened. I mean, I was I was doing a presentation at a conference recently and I showed when pathogen uh, was linked to the disease and when the vaccine came out. And that's usually years or maybe even dec decades before that happens. In this case, it happened in less, less than a year, actually nine months from the time WSO declared it a pandemic until we had the first vaccine approved. So I think that's number one. Reality outbeats um, outbeats what we can imagine, uh, really. Um, the second one is that technological advances will continue. And I think what we need to do is we need to be smart about uh, technologies and we need to make sure that uh, we are a little bit more agile in terms of introducing these technologies and take advantage of it as much as we can. And then I think the third thing, which has to me been very interesting, is that we started to see other players, other organizations really step it up and, um, and come and say that uh, 
we have a view on this and we would like to contribute and so on. I, I think one of the things in all of this is, I mean, we talked about it before, if you mix politics and science, you get uh, politics, right? Um, and I think it's important as scientists that we speak up, that we think about what is the right thing to do for patients and uh, do all we can for science to win. And I think we can. One of the things I contribute with is that I'm, uh, I'm involved in an, an initiative where the head of quality for the top 25 pharma companies in the world have come together and said, what can we do to reduce drug shortages and to innovate and continually improve our operations more? And, uh, and we've been engaging with different regulatory agencies on that. And I think that's important that that's happening. So I think we've seen that science is starting to speak up and, uh, and at a global level. So I think that, that those are the three things um, that I'm, I'm optimistic about. So you're right, I'm, I'm a born optimist. So, uh, so we learned a lot and uh, there are things that will still need to happen. And I think a lot of it can happen, but we need to speak up and do something about it. As um, you've spent most of your career in vaccines, do you, with with the rapid acceleration of platform technology, you know, you, when you consider the time it's take, you know, in 12 months we had a new vaccine that would normally take years and years and years to come through. How do you see the vaccine business model changing as a result of this? Do you see it? it staying the same or do you see it radically changing as a result of what we've experienced? So we've seen the messenger RNA as the first two vaccines that were approved here. And I think the technology will simply continue. I think we'll continue to see new ways, new type of vaccines being developed. And I think we're going to get more away from the old way of doing vaccines to some of these uh, new ways and it's going to go faster. So I think that's very that's very positive. It, it really is. Yeah. I think that's that's the direction where, where things will go. But we also need to remember producing uh, vaccines or medicines in general is not a matter of flipping a switch. It takes time to build a facility. So it's not only about developing the, the, the vaccine or the medicine. It's it's also to build a facility, validate it, have it up and running and so on. And that, that takes time as well. And so it's not like you just turn on like the tap and water comes out. It's not like you turn on the tap and you get a, an unlimited supply. So I think that's something that, that needs to be taken into consideration as well. Anders, what would you, because I know you from the past, you've been always passionate about education of people. You can build a plant, but you've got to have the people, the right quality people operating it. And one of the things that distinguished you from your peers was you always saw education as an investment rather than a cost. Because one of the one of the challenges we're going to face is, yeah, you can build a facility, but you don't learn how to make vaccines overnight. So what would you say to, I don't know, CFOs or CEOs listening to this about what, how they invest in their people um, to really have that skill set that is going to be needed in the future? Because usually training is just that, you know, you, you do it for compliance it's a painful cost rather than the view that I've known you to always have, which is you've got to invest in people before you make the products. Yeah, that's absolutely critical. And I, I, the, the interesting thing is you can't really come out when it comes to quality, for instance, you can't really get a degree in quality like you can in microbiology or chemical engineering or something like that. So the actually the education and quality is in the industry, but in general, um, we really need to spend time to make sure that we 
get up on that proficiency curve for people. It's super critical that people know what they're doing and why they're doing it instead of just following a procedure. Following a procedure blindly, I think, is dangerous because you don't know what, where is it this is critical, where is there a need to pay more attention and all that. So the education is absolutely critical. And I think as an industry, we we should maybe think even more about that than, than we have been doing. But I no, I agree. Um, having very knowledgeable people is extremely important. You see it often if somebody leaves who is very experienced that you really appreciate how knowledgeable that person was, but maybe you didn't appreciate why that person was there as much. Um, and I think that's what I like to, to think about. You really want to make sure that everyone you have adds a lot of value, has a lot of knowledge, and you want to make sure that they continue to grow in their jobs. Um, mm. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, Martin, um, we've been uh, more than a year into the pandemic and so on. So what, what would you say you learned about um, yourself over the last yeah, 15 months or so uh, since since all of this started? Interesting question, Anders. I think I've learned a lot. I think I've, I've realized why I studied medical microbiology, bacteriology, and infectious diseases. You know, I realized now, you know, one of the reasons I specialized in that area when I was in hospitals was my absolute fascination for these small things, viruses, microbes, and that fascination has continued. So what it's made me realize was that, hey, I made the right choice um, because Louis Pasteur had the famous quote, the microbe will always have the last word. Um, and that has made me really understand and respect those things we can't see. So, I, it, you know, I, I did. It reminded me of why I did the degree and my master's. Mm -hmm. It's reminded me of why I actually joined NSF. You know, NSF is a organization focused on improving um, and maintaining um, uh, the health of people around the world. And I'm really lucky to be surrounded by people that are driven towards that mission. Um, and it's reminded me, don't assume, don't, don't take for granted all of those things that you kind of assume or are always there. You know, the importance of my family, the importance of my friends, the importance of colleagues like you, uh, the importance of having a job with a purpose. And I think it's also reminded me about the importance of staying connected. You know, you and I have had more conversations and interactions as a result of COVID and both benefited from those that, you know, we, we wouldn't have done normally. So I think there's a lot of positives to come from that. So they, those are my points of reflection. Um, yeah. I think we'd better wrap up there. It's really great to see you again. Um, thanks. Really, you know, really insightful questions and look forward to uh, the next edition. So uh, stay yeah. safe. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much, Martin. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.